Uh, so all semester we've been looking at the Gospel of John and these different encounters with Jesus. Uh, if you were here last week, we saw Jesus encountering a very religious man, sort of an insider, a respected person, a leader. Uh, and here he meets with someone who is just the complete opposite, just one chapter later. And so we're going to look at it. It's kind of a long passage. But we're going to read the whole thing and then jump back into it as we go. Uh, so John chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, which is around noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where will you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one that you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And just then his disciples came back, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Uh, let me pray and then we'll, we'll jump in. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you sit down with us. You speak to us where we are. We pray that you would do just that for us tonight. Wherever we are coming from, whatever our status is with you or with each other tonight, we pray that you would meet us. Uh, and that you would satisfy us. I pray this in your name. Amen. Have you ever been thirsty? 
not that kind of thirsty. Um, ben, you have no idea how thirsty we are. We're, we're a bunch of single college students. We're so thirsty. Um, yes. Um, the regular kind of thirsty, okay. Um, the, uh, <laughs> the, uh, oh. So um, uh, I can think of a time when I was, like, super thirsty. Uh, it was years ago. I used to be a youth minister before uh, – graduating to college ministry, and uh, we were on this, uh, this mission trip uh, to Mexico, um, me and my youth group, and we were doing a basketball camp in this little village called Apodaca, which is about half an hour outside Monterey, and uh, it was in the middle of the afternoon, and we had our, our igloo water jugs had run out, and so we'd been out there running this basketball camp, and it's outdoor camp, like on this concrete in the in the hot Mexican sun, uh, to quote Buster Bluth. And um, we, you know, we were hot, and the church that uh, we were working with was about a mile and a half, maybe two miles away, and we were supposed to walk back with the gear. The, the bus that was supposed to pick us up didn't come, so we're, like, carrying, like, bags of basketballs and empty water jugs, and we're walking this mile and a half through this village. Uh, and I just can remember being so, so thirsty. Um, you, you probably think of a time like that uh, when, you've been, when you've been thirsty. And this passage is all about being thirsty. Like it's in the story, Jesus has been walking on this long journey. He's out of water. He sits down next to a well. He sees this woman. He asks her for a drink. And then he offers her a drink, which she wants. And, and uh, she says that she wants it. It's all about being thirsty. And I want to look at Jesus does something with this idea of thirst, and he elevates it. So first I want to look at uh, the thirst. You know, Jesus, in this conversation, begins with a drink, offers her then this living water, whatever that means, and she says that she wants it, so this is normal conversation, then he gets weird, and then she says, sure, so like even if you're reading this through the lens of like you've been around the church, you understand Christianity, you know Jesus is up to stuff, he's got her at this point, he's like, can I have a drink, and she says, yeah, well, how are you going to get it, and then he offers her living water, and she says, give me some of that water, and like this is the point where he would say, you know, believe in me, repent of your sins, and then that's how it's going to go about. But that's not what he does. She says, yes, I, I want what you're selling. I'm into it. And then he says this weird thing, verse 16, go get your husband, which is a strange change of subject. So, like, what, what is he doing? Um, that day uh, in Apodaca, as uh, me and my friends, we were walking back to this church. I can remember, you know, just being, like, desperate for a drink of any sort. And I remember as we approached the church, they were awesome, this group that had welcomed us and invited us to partner with them uh, to reach kids in the neighborhood. Uh, they, every day when we would come off the courts, they would have food for us. They would have, like, something to drink and something to eat. And, like, we can see the church in sight. And people are outside, and they have these paper Dixie cups filled with um, sliced-up watermelon, like, in its own juices. So you can see this, like, red liquid and chunks of, like, diced-up watermelon. And um, I don't know if you like watermelon. I love watermelon. I grew up in the South. I can remember, like, in the summers, like, church picnics and school picnics and family gatherings and all these things where you would have, like, the barbecue and then you'd put the, the watermelon on ice in a cooler all day long. And then, basically, I'd be, like, running around playing tag with my friends. And then they would cut the watermelon and we'd all come rushing over and basically, like, inhale slices of watermelon, right? And I'm like, now I get to, like, fulfill my dreams. I actually get to drink liquid watermelon. Like, this is going to be amazing. I can't wait. 
And so me and my friend Trey, we, we get to the front of the line, like we wait, we let the kids go first, because that was uh, my job. And, uh, you know, I get, we get the cup, and we're, we're ready, and I just remember just taking that to my lips and drinking, I was just chugging it back, and I'll never forget what it tasted like. Um, it tasted like the ocean, but saltier and warmer. It was like, you know how some people, like, you sprinkle salt on a slice of watermelon to kind of bring out the sweetness somehow? This was like, I think what had happened is they had done that, but we were the last ones there, so, like, all the salt had settled to the bottom. And so it was just like the saltiest, it was like a cracker with salt dipped in salt sauce. Um, and I, we both, Trey and I both, we, like, chugged it, and then, like, we're like, what's happening? And Trey just looked at me. I'll never forget it. He just looked at his, his eyes got huge, and he just goes, why? You know, like, like why? Why would, why would anyone do this to us? Um, it was an accident, but it happened. And, uh, you know, um, but I think, uh, so what Jesus is sort of doing here, when she says, I am thirsty, give me a drink. And Jesus says, go get your husband. He's telling her, you're actually thirstier than you think. Um, that you have been trying to quench your thirst on something that will actually never satisfy you. You have been chugging this thing, that this salty watermelon slush, saturated with salt, and it's these men. Uh, you're right in saying that you don't have a husband. You have had five, and the one that you currently have is also not your husband. That makes six, which seems kind of harsh. Seems like a strong thing for him to say, but he's doing it so that she would recognize um, that she has been trying to quench her thirst on something else. These men who have used and abused her and discarded her, and yet she has continued in this small town to go back and to go back and to go back to man after man after man. Why live like that? She's living like that because she has something greater that she's trying to satisfy. Um, Jesus is alluding to something here in this passage um, from the prophet Jeremiah where God says about his people, he says, my people have two things against me. First, they have forsaken me, the spring of living water. That's what God calls himself. They've forsaken me, in other words, cheated on me with another, uh, the spring of living water. Sound familiar? That's what Jesus says that he is. And two, they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So they have substituted for the, the spring of living water coming out cold from the ground. Instead of drinking from me, God says, you've dug your own pits, you've, dug, you've made clay, and you've put old, gross, stale water in it. And even those things that you have built to substitute for me, they're not just stale, gross cistern water. They're broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Um, do you realize that, spiritually speaking, that all of us, no matter what we seek, whatever we're doing, that, that we are trying to satisfy this spiritual thirst all the time? We are, um, that's why some of us sleep around. Um, that's why some of us um, judge the person who sleeps around. Um, that is what dry, is driving our behavior, this thirst for the living water, and that we do the exact same thing, uh, all of us. Um, what is your salty watermelon. What is your broken cistern that's the thing that you can't get enough of? For this woman, it's relationships, and for some of us, maybe it's the same thing. You may not actually be sleeping around,
but you may be that person who can't go 15 minutes without a girlfriend, right? We all either are that person or know that person. You have to be in a relationship. And if you're not, you kind of don't know who you are. You go from person to person saying, satisfy me. Tell me who I am. Um, this is why we drink or drink too much. We're trying to, we're quite literally thirsty in that case. Uh, but do you realize that whether it's you or the person that you're judging for doing it, that, that the evidence of pursuing these things that where we can get some sort of relief, some sense of joy, some sense of happiness, some sense of belonging, that behind that is this drive that is spiritual, that's wanting something to satisfy us. Or maybe, you know, you, you don't do these other sort of more obvious things with the relationships and sexuality and alcohol, but maybe you're just so absorbed in your academics that like nothing else matters, right? You, you came to William and Mary to prove that you should have gotten into Harvard and you're gonna show them all wrong and then you're gonna be a little bit better than everybody else. And that GPA is gonna tell you who you are. It's going to satisfy you. It's going to quench your thirst. Um, or maybe it's not just academics. Like, that's too narrow because you, this is William & Mary, and you, we all want to be well-balanced. You know, I think the thing that makes William & Mary actually better than Harvard is that students here are well-balanced, meaning that we're in, like, eight different clubs, and we are, like, in charge of half of them, and we're, like, so committed, and we're a little bit busier than everybody else, and uh, we need these activities. And so, like, when you graduate, you're going to get a job, and you're going to be not an alcoholic, but a workaholic, right? A person addicted to workahol. And, um, and a lot of you have parents that are that way. Like you've got a, a mom or a dad who would, it would kill them to tell their boss, no, I'm not, I'm not staying late. Uh, I don't care how much you're paying me. I'm going home. I'm taking a break. I'm going to be with my family. Uh, or we can do it with spirituality. Like you're in seven different Bible studies. Like you're in RUF and you're like in all the other groups and you're like, I'm going to make sure every single day I check my Christian box, and I'm going to spiritually build a cistern of Christian spirituality to tell me who I am and to tell me I'm getting it right. Um, and for me, it's approval. I tell this to people all the time, like, this is really bad because I'm like a pastor. I would prefer for you, for all of you guys to like me and think well of me. I would rather that than you be sanctified than you to be more like God. I would prefer you liking me to you growing. That's a broken cistern. That's a cup of salty watermelon. And Jesus brings this up. He asks her this question, go get your husband. The exposure of these things can be painful, but Jesus exposes these things. He wounds in order to heal. He doesn't cut with the knife of a robber, but he cuts on us with the scalpel of a surgeon. And that's what he is doing to her with this painful subject that he brings up. It's like a wound, but he does it to heal so that she'll know that she's really, really thirsty. And I, I think she actually picks up on this. In verse 19, you know, it's a really interesting response. Actually, you've got six dudes you've been sleeping with. What's her response? Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. <laughs> you know, like, and a lot of the people who look at this text, a lot of the commentaries and stuff think that she's sort of dodging the issue. Like, let's not talk about my sex life, stranger. Let's ask a question about, like, what mountain we're supposed to worship on. Let's, like, let's move this off. And uh, that could be the case. It could be an artful dodge. Um, but uh, I kind of wonder if she's like, wait a second, I think you're honest. Like, 
I need to ask you this important question. Either way, Jesus goes, he takes the conversation where she took it. She, you want to talk about worship? Let's talk about worship, uh, he says. Uh, and he goes with it, and he goes with it because worship is at the very heart of this issue. So the heart of her issue and your issue, this idea of spiritual thirst quenching and worship, they're really the same thing. Like we go to these things um, because we think that they will satisfy us. Worship is essentially saying this thing, person, place, idea, concept, activity, is the thing that is the most valuable, the most worthy, the thing that tells me who I am, the thing I want to devote my life to. And so um, if it's success, you know, if it's, uh, if it's getting the job that pays you the most, okay, so maybe you, you want the best job because you worship money. Well, why do, you, why do you go after money? You worship money because you worship power. You worship control. Money is just a, a, a form of social status and power and influence on your world. And so we're bowing down and worshiping on the mountain of success. Well, what do you worship? Um, maybe it's success. Maybe it's status. Maybe it's freedom. I don't want to be rich. I just want to be able to do what I want when I want. Maybe it's comfort. Maybe it's admiration, the opinions of other people, just wanting them to adore you and like you, acceptance, control, power, respect. See, the irony of all of these things, like a broken cistern or like a cup of salty watermelon, that the more we go after these things, the more holes we're knocking in that cistern. We can build that new cistern, but the more that we devote ourselves to it, the faster the, rot, the water runs out of the bottom. The more I drink the watermelon, the thirstier I get. I only get more dehydrated. Broken cisterns that cannot hold water. I think she is worried that her worship is wrong. And so she's asking this man who she thinks is a prophet, because false worship never quenches it only leaves us more empty than when we started. And that's always this really disappointing thing when we finally get the thing that we want, that we thought would finally make us happy, and then it doesn't. And he has met with this woman here, and that's exactly where she is. She is thirstier than she's ever been. Her strategy in life so far has not panned out. It's only resulted in hurt and harm for her. So she's asking the prophet, how do I worship? In other words, can you quench my thirst? I want that living water. So that's all about thirst. The second is, how is it quenched? What's it mean to be thirsty? And then how is that thirst quenched? Um, the biblical answer, Jesus is saying, I am the source of living water. That's what God says in Jeremiah. That's what Jesus is saying here. I can give you living water that wells up to overflowing in eternal life, both for you and to others. Um, does he quench her thirst? Well, he does, I would argue, in this passage. And I just want to point out how that thirst gets quenched. By looking at the barriers that Jesus bulldozes over in order to quench this woman's thirst. Uh, first barrier is she's a woman. <laughs> Did you notice that the disciples, when they show up, it says that they are surprised that he is speaking to a woman. So in that culture, if the, the culturally appropriate, polite thing for Jesus to have done at that well would have been to sit down at the well and pretend that she wasn't there. It was culturally inappropriate for a woman and a man to be speaking alone. And yet he speaks to her, which tells us so much 
about Jesus both in his cultural day and still has a lot to teach us now. We're still sort of catching up to him. I love this quote from Dorothy Sayers. The title of the essay is unbelievable that this essay needed to be written. Dorothy Sayers, in her, in her essay, Are Women Human?, <laughs> writes this, Perhaps it is no wonder that the women were the first at the cradle and last at the cross. They had never known a man like this man, and there has never been another. A prophet and teacher who never nagged at them, never flattered or coaxed or patronized, who never made arch jokes about them, never treated them as either Oh, the woman, the women, God help us, or the ladies, God bless them, who rebuked without querulousness and praised without condescension, who took their questions and their arguments seriously, who never mapped out their sphere for them, never urged them to be feminine or jeered them for being female, who had no axe to grind and no easy, uneasy male dignity to defend, who took them as he found them and was completely unselfconscious. There is no act, no sermon, no parable in the whole gospel that borrows its pungency from female perversity. Nobody could possibly guess from the words and deeds of Jesus that there was anything funny about woman's nature. And that essay is tremendous. That's just a snapshot. But she's pointing out something that would have been so radical in Jesus' day and is honestly still radical now. He treats her as a human being in the image of God. And he breaks all the cultural rules to talk to her. And not only that, but he asks something from her, which is this tremendous gesture of humility on his part. Uh, two chapters ago, he takes water and magically turns it into wine. Like, the dude could have gotten a cup of water on his own. But the person who's asking for something from someone else puts themselves beneath them in the power structure. And he says, will you give me a drink? So first, she's a woman. Second, she's a Samaritan. You notice her surprise. Like, what are you doing, a Jewish man, speaking to me, a Samaritan woman? It's another social and cultural rule that he's breaking. So the Samaritans, if you don't know, uh, were looked down upon by Jews, both for, like, just good old-fashioned racist reasons as well as religious reasons. So basically, they were, um, they were considered sort of like in Harry Potter world, they would have been mudbloods, Okay. The Slytherins would not have allowed them uh, in, their, in their house. Um, but they were also perceived as having, and in some ways theologically true, had taken the Jewish faith and had syncretized it with other religions and had kind of muddied that up. So um, when she says, when it says in parentheses, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, uh, according to the custom of the culture at the time, in order for Jesus to touch the same cup that she touched, would make him ceremonially unclean to even share uh, an eating device or a drinking device with her. So he breaks through that barrier. And then, of course, as we've already seen, three, she's, you know, on God's terminology, she's a sinner. She's a fornicator. She's been sleeping around this village uh, with different men. Um, and did you notice uh, the time of day? I pointed it out when I read the passage. Um, it's noon. If you had to go every single day to get clean water, you had to go out to a well and fill up jars and carry them back to your house, what time of day would you do that? In a desert climate? Noon? Like, why is she there at noon? 
Because the other women in the village don't want her there at 6 a.m. Because of her reputation. We know from studies, this is a relatively small town. Like, people knew. I don't want you around my husband, and I don't want to be around you. So you can come get water in the heat of the day. And then, of course, the men in the village are no better than the women, because they're the ones treating her like property for their own pleasure and casting her aside and not taking care of her, which would have been the cultural custom of even that. Even a, a decent dude who's got a lady on the side at least takes care of her. But she didn't even have that. No one wanted her. The women didn't want her, and the men didn't want her. But Jesus wanted her. Jesus broke through those barriers because he said, the Father is seeking worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And the final thing that we see of Jesus breaking through barriers, it says in verse 4, it's his own determination. It says, Jesus had to go through Samaria. If you look on a map, it would be like saying, like, I was going to Norfolk, and I, it's not like saying I had to go through Newport News. Like, I can't get to Norfolk without going through Newport News. It would be like saying, uh, Ben was going to North, Norfolk, and so he had to go through Suffolk. Like, I can go through Suffolk, but it's actually kind of out of the way. But it says he had to go through Samaria. And uh, commentators refer to the, the use of this language, this language of had to in Greek. They refer to it as a term of divine necessity. That he had to go through there because the Father was seeking worshipers who would worship him in spirit and truth. And she is candidate number one. Jesus had to go and get her because of how thirsty she is. And so does he quench her thirst? I, I think that she, he does. It says, it, notice the progression in the passage. First she's like, what are you better than our father Jacob? And he answers her. And then she's like, well, okay, yeah, I do want the water that you have. And then she says, oh, I perceive you are a prophet. A little step up from Jacob here. And then she's saying, well, okay, what's the right way to worship? And as they talk about worship, then she says, you know, I've heard one called Messiah is going to come, and he, he's going to tell us everything. And you can, you can see that she's leaning in, that she gets it. And Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. She's recognizing him as the Messiah. And then the very next thing she does, what does she go and do? She goes back to her village and says, can this be the Christ? Come and see. Come and meet him. And notice what she says to them. She doesn't just say, like, I think I found the Messiah. She says, come and meet a man who told me everything I ever did. To the people who used and abused and ostracized her. What was that thing that he told you that you did? <laughs> Answer the question. Oh, he told me all about how I slept with you and you and you and your husband. He's not here, but your husband. And, you know, I think he might be the Messiah. Let's go take a look. And then they come. In the next passage, they come with her. Okay, so how is our thirst quenched? How do we tap into that living water, especially when our cisterns are broken, right? Um, I'll tell you a last story. Uh, years ago, I've, I've been on like three mission trips in my life, and I'm telling about two of them in this story. I'm not like Mr. Mission Trip. Um, but I, when I was in seminary, I got to spend a month in Uganda 
And um, the director of the trip is a guy, he's an Old Testament scholar named Henry Kravendam. Uh He's Dutch, and he has sort of, he had this like infection in his vocal box, uh, and he's like seven feet tall. Uh, and so he has this like deep voice and sort of a strange uh, way of speaking. And uh, he was one of my professors, um, and uh, he, he had to preach with a karaoke machine, even in small classes, just because his voice couldn't carry. And so he would tape all the lectures on his karaoke machine. And um, we had a connection, and he liked to single me out for asking questions. So he would ask all these riddles, and he'd be like, oh, Mr. Robertson, how do you answer the riddle? And then he'd put the microphone in my face, and I'd be like, I would try to answer it first, and then after a while I realized just, it's better just to say you don't know. So it's like, Mr. Robertson, huh? and I'd be like, I don't know. Um, but it's on tape somewhere in a library. He would put them in the library after he taped his lectures. And um, but so, so we're in Uganda, and he told us about um, this riddle that he had, he had given. Um, and it was, he was saying, you know, if you've got a bucket with no lid on the top, and there's holes poked in the bottom and the sides. How do you fill it up with water? Even if you've got a fresh spring, how do you, how do you fill it up? Because you keep pouring it in and the water just runs out. And that's how a lot of us probably feel. I, I want to connect with God. I want these things, but it's like I, as soon as the water comes in, it runs out. It's like, how do you fill the bucket? And I was like, I don't know. And nobody else knew. And he said, oh, I'll tell you tomorrow. And we were like, okay. And we we're like ready to leave class. Like that's the end of class. And then he says, wait. I'm going to tell you now. And then he says, and I'm going to tell you why I'm going to tell you now. But years ago in Uganda, I was teaching this same class. And I said, I'll tell you tomorrow. And a young man came up to me, and he grabbed me by the shirt, and he said, tell me the answer to the riddle. And I said, I'll tell you tomorrow. And he said, no, tell me now. Said, I'll tell you tomorrow. Tell me now. And this is a young man, you know, approaching an older man, physically grabbing him by the arm and by the shirt. And it, Dr. K gets mad. He's like, come on. Like, it's like a device for teaching. You're supposed to think about it. Like, come on. And he gets upset with the kid. And he, he's a guy's about 18. And he says, why do you need to know now? And this dude says to Dr. K, ah, Dr. K, if you don't tell me now, then I will be empty until tomorrow. And he looked at all of us smug little theological students. And he said, have you ever felt that empty? So we didn't know we were empty. This dude did. And so Dr. K tells us, he says, the way you fill up the bucket is you take the entire bucket and you submerge it in the living waters of Jesus. So the whole bucket has to be joined to Jesus continually. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And that if you take of my water, that water will fill you up such that it overflows to living water, not just that it contains the bucket itself, but that it flows out for others. And I got to tell you, I'll never forget that. I'll never forget realizing that I'm so smug and arrogant that I didn't actually think I needed to know the answer. 
that I didn't know that I was empty. And I'll never forget what he said. And that is exactly what Jesus does for this woman. Because she goes back to the village and the living water has already started to flow through her life and into the very people who had oppressed and persecuted her. So that he took, looks to his disciples and says, hey, you don't get it, but she does. Why is he talking with a woman? And none of them, are, none of them answer or none of them ask. They're all afraid. Whenever I ask him a question, he gives like a weird answer. I don't know what to say. You ask him. So they were just like, what's he doing? I don't know. And then he's saying, disciples, you don't get it. She does. Behold, the fields are white for the harvest. Here they come as the people from the Samaritan village come out to meet the Messiah. Um, let's meet him too and let's join with her. Um, let me pray and then we'll sing. Lord God, we thank you that you are good, that you are kind, that you are merciful, that you are gracious, and that you, um, that you are capable of satisfying uh, beyond our wildest imaginations. Um, we pray that you would do that for us tonight. Amen.